Hello, this is Ken Erickson and the podcast Serving and Uniting America. And the previous podcast or the the previous announcement was Serving and Uniting America and our timeless imperative to serve and unite our country. This current one, this second podcast, has the issue and the topic titled this way, Remembering the Eisenhower's Trip to Russia and New Reasons to Repeat It. In the first podcast, in the first subject that we dealt with, I had shared with with all of you some of the events in the 1980s when, with the help of my pastor, Al, Jack Matlock, one of the chief people in the White House advising the president on security matters, and uh, also some help, especially on the first suggestion I made that the White House was able to use, was helped by Senator Hatfield, who served the state of Oregon. So all three of these deserve major credit. I could not have done what I was able to do without their help and the help of others as well, but I especially want to highlight those three. Today, I want to get back to my concern over our relations with Russia. In many ways, I I see it very much like the, the dark days in the early 80s when our rhetoric between the two countries was very bad there was no real respect, and we had to start from somewhere, and the Reagan administration took the steps that they saw were helpful in reaching out to the Soviet leadership and seeing if we could do something to improve our relationship and maybe also make it an enduring improvement. And when we look at how things are today, it's very difficult to to say that we're much different from the way we were then. We don't really have a close relationship. NATO is still very concerned about events going on concerning Russia. Right now in Belarus, there are a lot of concerns that the the population's uh, disenchantment with their current leadership for the last 26 years might trigger a response from Mr. Putin and Russia that would be further damaging to our relationship with Russia and Russia's relationship not only with us, but of course with all of NATO. So this is the reason I want to return to it. I might stress that at the time in the 1980s when I had my three encounters ongoing encounters uh, with the White House, even though it was, they were always meant to make a direct appeal in a very honest way with the leadership of the Soviet Union, in the back of my mind I always hoped that somehow it also would be shared with the common citizens of the Soviet Union, because the things that were said were very very honest on the one hand, but also paid very honest respect 
of that time when we were allies. When you look at our ongoing history, especially with the beginning of the Second World War, right on to the current, it's not really possible for me to say we've ever really been friends. I think it's much more accurate to say that once upon a time we were allies and allies out of necessity. Both sides, uh, both, both the Americans as well as our Western allies and the Russians to the east faced a, a very severe threat to our, our values, to our history, to our sense of safety. And I might even add, as regards the, the Russians, there was even a concern there of some possible kind of ethnic extinction because of the uh, Nazi stance that many of the people who were not of what supposedly the Germans were, were Untermenschen, were, were subhumans. And they made this claim against some of the populations of the Soviet Union. So it, it, was, it was a fight to the death. No one knew at the beginning of the war how it was going to end. No one knew, for instance, who might come up first with some super weapons, which eventually was reached when the, the British and the Americans worked together in Nevada and other places to perfect the atom bomb, which was used near the very end of the war in the Pacific. So we've never really been friends, and my concern then and now is that if there's anything of value in these podcasts, that they also may in some fashion be available to the common people, the common citizens of what's now Russia, uh, greater Russia. Only time will tell just how we respond to our current crises. And I'm especially attentive to the fact that 35 years ago, as a Christian, I was very concerned that, that we make our appeal to the leadership of the Soviet Union. But now it's, it's not in my subconscious, it's right up in front that I realize without the active help of the Eastern Orthodox Church, including uh, the most holy Russian Orthodox Church, and the help of the Roman Catholic Church, of which I'm a member, and I think I was very much inspired by John Paul II, the Pope from Poland, who had endured the terrors of the war itself, and then the, the terrible hardships and oppression that he and his people in Poland experienced under the Soviet Union. They were called members of the Warsaw Pact, but in truth, they were just controlled completely, and there was a penalty to those who resisted the occupation. So I, I uh, again feel that no matter how intelligent and how smart we are in our State Department, and we have brilliant people, have all along in our State Department, and, and no matter how sincere our leadership is, and even the leadership of uh, Russia, because of course, Mr. Gorbachev had a very different approach 
to what the future could hold between Russia and us from the apparent stance that uh, Mr. Putin takes in his vision of the future of our relationship, Russia and the United States, and, and truthfully, all of Western Europe, all of the NATO countries. That's really the challenge that we face. And I think with all of our talent and everything else, without help from God and without help from our established churches, the Holy Russian Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, and any of the churches that want to participate, without their active participation, I just don't think we're going to have an enduring type of progress. And I think that would be tragic, not only for us, but I think that will truthfully affect, in, in, in not a positive way, the entire planet. Recently, in the Wall Street Journal, a couple articles caught my attention. The Pope, our current Pope Francis, had his um, first audience in a number of months and talked to about 500 people in one area of the uh, Vatican, not the usual place where he has thousands gathered. And he made the comment to that small crowd of about 500 that, quote, the pandemic has highlighted our interdependence. We are all linked to each other for better or for worse. And I think that just goes without saying. Uh, it's true for us in here in our country unless we recognize that we're all linked together. We, we can't have this division and think that something really great's gonna come out of the division itself. It's one thing to have different opinions. That's, your, that's a richness. But to be divided as we are and as angry and hostile as, as we've become, this is not going to serve us now or in the future. And shortly after I read that article, a couple days later, September 4th of this year, 2020, Wall Street Journal, an article caught my attention titled, A First Step Toward Loving Our Enemies. A First Step Toward Loving Our Enemies. And it was written by two priests, John C. Danforth, an Anglican priest, and Matt Malone, I think the pronouncing is correct. Matt Malone, who is a Jesuit priest. And they made the point that if we could just even change the tone by which we deal with each other, perhaps in some way taking the passing of the peace just before we experience the Eucharist at each service, if we could somehow transfer that tone and even that greeting in some way by saying we, we want to pass the peace, especially to other Christians, we want to pass the peace of the Lord to be with you now and always. Or if you're in a secular setting, a statement such as beginning any conversation, even with someone you have deep disagreements with, with the quote, I am your friend, unquote. Now, I mentioned just a few minutes ago that I simply don't think we can say we are your friends to the Russians, and they can't say it to us. It's, it's just not there in the history. What is in the history is the fact 
that at one time, with our backs against the wall, we became allies out of necessity, the necessity that we preserve our freedom and preserve our, our, the very lives of our children and their offspring in the future. That's really a more honest assessment of where we are. Not friends, but two major bodies of people who can look back and say, at one time we were allies, and even though there were problems at times throughout the war that we had to deal with, and frustrations and even some criticism, mutual criticism at times, we held together and we stood together until Hitler and those who followed and served him and those who obeyed him in every way were no longer the threat to us that we had seen firsthand. So I want to share with you what I th thought might be in a beginning outreach. That happened in the early 80s. I saw that things were so bad and, uh, you know, I was worried, not only my family, but I'm a high school counselor, as I've mentioned in the previous podcast. You know, I look at the kids and I think, man, is, is this what they're headed for? You know, in a few years, I mean, some of these people are going to be of age for the service and, and, and other things. Of course, it's, it was volunteer by then. But, but the point is, I looked at them and I said, boy, they deserve a better a better future than what's hanging over with it. There were demonstrations in Europe at the time over nuclear weapons. Russians shot down a passenger jet some ways from Korean airspace, you know, and everyone on board was lost. The rhetoric back and forth, uh, we, you know, consider them axis of evil. It just was not good. It just was evil empire. That was it. Evil empire, axis of Evil might have come a little later, but the evil empire, things like that. So I, I went to my, my pastor, Al, and I said, you know, uh, Al, I want to mention with you, I was looking again at uh, Dwight Eisenhower's book published right after the war, 1948, uh, Crusading Europe. I noticed something about his trip to Russia. He ended up uh, taking his son as well, John, who at that time was a, a lieutenant and had served in the last year of World War II. I noticed that when he got there, temporarily, there, there at least seemed to be some comradeship between the people. And Eisenhower uh, highlights that, that at that time, there, there was some genuine, genuine relief that the war was over, but also that, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe something can happen in the future that would be positive between us because no one could hide the fact that we simply had very different views of what constituted goodness for a country. Goodness in terms of security, of enough food, of enough respect, of enough of the uh, four freedoms that President Franklin Roosevelt had talked about uh, on a ship in the Atlantic Ocean before we actually became involved directly with the declaration of war. I shared it with him. He said, you know, follow through. Just just go ahead and follow through with it. So I spent some time, wrote up a letter, and sent it to the United States Department of State. I got this response, and I might also add to you that just just before 
I had done that, I had thought that maybe with the presidential election of 84 coming up, that I would support John Glenn, whom I respected very much. He was really a hero. Uh, he had a sterling war record. And then, of course, he was one of our amazing astronauts. Everyone just respected the guy, just, just really thought the world of him. So I, I made an overture, but they, they were having difficulties. Maybe some of it was raising enough money, but anyhow, it wasn't very long after I'd made my reaching out to them that he ended his candidacy. So at that point, I had to decide, well, who would be next? And I had been impressed, even though to that time I had never voted for a Republican for president, starting with um, Lyndon Johnson as president. He's the first I had ever voted for, and they were all Democrats, including Jimmy Carter, Twice I voted for. Last time was uh, in '80. So, but I had always, at the same time, supported people like Bill Milliken, George Romney as governors. So I considered myself an independent voter, and I still do. I still always mix my things. Uh, in this election, I will not vote straight party ticket, but I have strong views at the same time. So anyhow, by the time I decided I I would take a chance with Ronald Reagan, I was very, fairly sure that he would be the best of those running in both parties since uh, John Glenn had dropped out, who might seriously take my suggestion. I remembered that Reagan, uh, Ronald Reagan always said his favorite president in his lifetime was Franklin Roosevelt, and he never varied from that. So I sent it in. And on July 4th of 84, I got this response, which I wish to share with you. Dear Mr. Erickson, the president has asked me to reply on his behalf to your very moving message entitled, quote, a broader pilgrimage, unquote. I wish to thank you for reminding all of us who work on relations with the Soviets of John Eisenhower's effective amateur diplomacy. It remains an inspiration and an example of the sort of rapport that can be especially useful in our contacts with the Soviets. We were impressed also with the eloquence of your argument for a summit meeting between the president and the Soviet leadership as a means of building bridges between our two societies. The president himself has said that he would support such a summit if there were adequate preparation and the session held the prospect of achieving meaningful results. We have made these qualifications not to delay such a meeting, but rather to ensure it would be a success if it were to occur. We do not want to raise and disappoint expectations by trying to arrange a hasty summit for which both sides would be ill-prepared. Unfortunately, it also is true that the Soviets are making it particularly difficult to make progress in our relationship at this time. They seem to have decided for the time being to pressure us with harsh rhetoric and a show of unwillingness to expand contacts and communications. In such a situation, we would not wish to suggest that such tactics are working by asking them to accept a hastily arranged 
presidential visit to Moscow. Despite current Soviet behavior, I wish to assure you that we are continuing to do all we can to improve the U.S.-Soviet relationship. We are attempting to engage the Soviets in a mutually beneficial dialogue on arms control and all other problems between our two countries. Our hope and belief is that if we persist with this calm and open approach, we will eventually be able to create the basis for real progress in our relation with the Soviets. Sincerely, Thomas W. Simons, Jr., Director, Soviet Union Affairs. I very much appreciated the response from Mr. Simons, and I thought to myself, well, what you can simply do is, is, is pray that an opportunity will come, and especially their concerns on, on arms control and things like that, I'll also just try to remain attentive. My pastor, Al, always made the point, look, uh, just be attentive, because you don't know when God's going to speak to you through some situation or through whom. The best argument, uh, I don't want to divert too much here, the best argument for all, all of us in this country to all treat each other and actually have in our very daily actions understanding that we are all equal is because if for any reason you shun any group, any ethnic group or any religious group or anything like that, you may be shutting off the very people God has chosen to speak to you on a specific issue. And if you don't listen to them, it may not happen. So it's not some let's feel good and all hold hands and sing kumbaya. It's a matter of life and death, and it's a matter of quality of life. It's only if we're open to everyone that when God chooses to speak through others as he will, that'll happen. That's going to happen at times. You'd better be alert. I mean, some of the best insights I got, and I'm not going to go on and on, into what happened in war are when you run into people who, who have been at war. When I worked as an hourly worker for about 10 months at a Ford uh, warehouse, a parts depot, boy, uh, the guys weren't bragging uh, who were in their 40s about the, how great the war was. It, it was terrible. It was just terrible. At the, one of the churches I was working at, uh, one of the uh, gentlemen there, Mr. Wayman Jackson, a wonderful African-American man who had served in Italy and, and told me of the real hardships. That gave me insight I wouldn't have had that God wanted me to have about World War II. I can say, frankly, people like uh, Mr. Jackson and the, and the people I work with at the uh, parts depot are really playing a part in this very podcast that, uh, that I'm sharing with you. And God bless all of them. Uh, they've all passed on, I'm, I'm sure by now, but uh, Mr. Jackson has. God bless all of you for your help on that. As I was uh, paying attention to the papers and what was going on, I noticed something was happening and they were going to actually have a meeting. I wasn't sure of the date yet, but they were getting serious uh, about having an actual meeting. And I thought, 
wow, uh, this could be that opportunity I was looking for. As more information came out, I listened and, and looked at uh, what they said, and they made the point, we're going to meet. It's, it's set. It's going to be in Geneva, Switzerland, and it's going to deal with arms uh, issues because we're very concerned that we don't have an arms uh, negotiated between us. We've set it for November, and it's going to be a two-day meeting just to set things up for the future. Very important meeting. And the two dates are going to be November 19th and November 20th. Almost immediately, that rang a bell. And I thought, I know those dates. And it seemed like just in a matter of a couple minutes, a few minutes, I remember that that was the beginning of the Soviet Union launching a counterattack against the German Sixth Army and the allies of the German Sixth Army in a city named Stalingrad. I was just shocked. My, I thought to myself, okay, how can I, who can I get in touch with? Should I uh, get a hold of that same guy, that same gentleman, Mr. Uh, Simon, or should I try some other people as well? And a couple things happened in short order. First of all, uh, Senator Mark Hatfield, who I, I had great respect for, uh, he's a Christian, it was announced he was going to speak to a Christian group at a city uh, that I could drive to in Michigan. It was going to be given at uh, like a campground, a lot of uh, people camping out there. So I, I marked that down and informed my wife. At the right time, our, our family got in. We went there. I talked about this in the previous podcast, talked about it with him. He said, keep me in touch. Absolutely, this is a good idea. I want you to keep in contact with me. And then shortly after that, maybe within a matter of, you know, days or so. In my library at the high school I worked at for uh, somewhat under 40 years, worked for them somewhat under that time limit, I got a hold of a, a magazine that had an article on a gentleman by the name of Jack Matlock. And he was attached to the White House and he was a Soviet expert. And he was also one of the high security people with the Reagan administration. I got the telephone number rang it up, a woman with a heavy accent, maybe Russian, I don't know. After about two minutes or so, maybe three, she said, uh, I, I want you to stop, and you hold on, I'll get back to you. So about three or four minutes later, she got back on the line, and she said, look, write it up immediately. I'm going to give you the address so that when he gets to the mass mailing that comes to the White House, it'll come to us immediately. So write it up, get it into the mail immediately, and we will get back to you. So did that. A couple weeks later, I got a call from someone in the State Department, and uh, they basically said, look, we're going to do it. And then again, I, I gave you the history of all the other stuff. That was the first contact that established that relationship. 
my, my pastor, Senator Mark Hatfield, and of course, Jack uh, Matlock. He, he was tremendous throughout because it, it, some of these things took a long time and one of them uh, just didn't come to fruition at the time. After that, and, and after a reporter from the Free Press, because you may recall in the past podcast that there was a blackout for a while after the meeting in Geneva. But anyhow, uh, James McCartney uh, was the journalist stationed in Washington working for the Detroit Free Press who got the whole story. And then that story was, was released, Sunday edition, front page, Detroit Free Press, on the toast that President Reagan uh, had given. That was very, very important. That was, that was the toast where, where Reagan was quoted, we hope that this meeting will also be a turning point, unquote, because Reagan was trying to make the point that, look, we're not just interested in a meeting and let's come up with something. Let's see if we can actually do something long-term on a relationship. And that doesn't mean we don't disagree with each other. Uh, we can even talk openly about our disagreements. In fact, we have to. We've got to talk openly about our disagreements. But that's going to be the approach we have. So that gave me hope that, that this was something that would actually work. After that, we saw in the paper that Max Kampelman, who was someone who had served a long time in the State Department, just excellent, he was designated to be the lead negotiator for the Reagan administration in working with the Soviets on coming up with what eventually became the INF Treaty. That was very, very good news, I thought, especially in, in retrospect when I looked back. And again, what surprised me at the time was the paper said, this guy is a solid Democrat, he's Jewish, and I read for what Reagan had to say. These were comments by reporters, but the only thing I ever saw Reagan say was, Max Kampelman is an American patriot, quote unquote. And of course, that says a lot about Reagan, okay? He always said, I don't care what a person's background, I will always go and get the best man or the best woman, and I, I will get them for my administration. If it's a woman, I'll put her on the Supreme Court if she's great, and he did. So that also is very important to, to quote out. The Reagan administration was seeking the best people to serve in the administration, and then the president would support them. He'd support them, and he'd be loyal to them. And, and it was just amazing uh, how, how, how those people look back and those who are still alive just have tremendous respect for the way President Reagan treated them. Going on, I thought at some point, because every once in a while I'd write the State Department on that suggestion about a broader pilgrimage, and I thought, you know, here it is. Uh, we've already had the first meeting uh, in Geneva. I had to fill in um, John Eisenhower. He's still alive, and let him know what's going on to a degree. So I, I wrote him. Let me give you the background, and then I'll give you his response in his letter. And the background is that part of Crusade in Europe where 
Dwight Eisenhower is explaining just what happened during one of the toasting periods because they were going to every all kinds of cities, you know, Leningrad, Moscow, everything, and, and they had a toasting periods. So I think it's part of their culture there, toasting periods wherever you go. But anyhow, here's what Dwight Eisenhower uh, says in uh, one of his last ch- chapters uh, dealing with the Russians. He says, During the toasting period at the Leningrad luncheon, my son who had heretofore escaped the ordeal was called upon by Marshal Zukov for a toast. Later John told me that during the entire uh, visit, he had been fearing such a challenge and had prepared himself for it as well as he could. He rose to his feet and after remarking that as a young lieutenant he was not accustomed to associate with marshals of the Soviet Union, mayors of great cities, and five-star generals, he said in effect, quote, I have been in Russia several days and have listened to many toasts. I have heard the virtues of every allied ruler, every prominent marshal, general, admiral, and air marshal and air commander toasted. I have yet to hear a toast to the most important Russian in World War II. Gentlemen, will you please drink with me to the common soldier of the great Red Army, unquote. His toast was greeted, Dwight Eisenhower says, with greater enthusiasm and shouts of approval than any other I heard during the days when we heard so many. Marshal Zukov was particularly pleased and said to me that he and I must be getting old when we had to wait for a young lieutenant to remind us who really won, who, quote, really won the war, unquote. That was it, and that's what I based uh, my letter on, uh, as you know, to the State Department. And just a few days after I had mailed it, to John Eisenhower, and, and I should point out, John Eisenhower passed away around 2012 or 2013. He passed away. Anyhow, here's was, here was his response. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Erickson, June 30th, 1986. I appreciate your letter of June 20th with the enclosures. You have an ambitious project underway, and I wish you good fortune in pursuing it. I reread the paragraphs from Crusade regarding my toast in Leningrad. I recall being worried for fear that someone would preempt my tribute to the common soldier of the Great Red Army. I was lucky. Incidentally, that trip to USSR was made in August 1945 during the so-called honeymoon. Like most honeymoons, that period of warmth between us and the Soviets was short-lived. But the camaraderie of the moment was sincere. Again, good luck on your efforts. An understanding between our two nations is the only way the nuclear dilemma can be solved. In the absence of mutual trust, neither side is going to negotiate away any advantage perceived or real. And then he he went on with a a couple other things as as well. And then signed, Sincerely, John Eisenhower. 
So my view, without making it uh, too long, is it didn't come about. Uh, things things went bad. Even though at before things just fell apart, you know, Soviet Union uh, fell apart. New leadership was very different from what it had been. But I'll, I'll read you uh, quickly one letter when I still had hope. This was December 14th, 1989. Dear Mr. Erickson, thank you for your letter regarding the next U.S.-Soviet summit. At the same time that the frequency and breadth of our dialogue with the Soviets has increased on the official level, citizens-to-citizen exchanges have also grown dramatically. The warmth that John Eisenhower must have generated with his toast is certainly symbolic of the type of interchange that is more possible today than it was even five years ago when, you, when I first wrote them, he's saying. Your proposal to invite uh, Mr. Eisenhower to a state dinner during the 1990 summit, it's an intriguing one. As you might imagine, we're still in the very early planning stages for the event itself and the activities surrounding it. However, as we progress with our arrangements, we will certainly keep your suggestion in mind. So, and this was signed, sincerely, Alexander Vershbow, V-E-R-S-H-B-O-W. Alexander Vershbow, Director, Office of Soviet Union Affairs. From that first contact with the White House, June 4th, 1984, to December 14th, 1989, I had some hope, but then things just fell apart, and that was never served. And as I said, John Eisenhower, a great, great man, a General Eisenhower, like his father, entitled General Eisenhower, but he passed away uh, several years ago. My strong, strong hope is that this time, the Roman Catholic Church, but especially the Holy Russian Orthodox Church and even the Eastern Orthodox Church as a whole will somehow get involved to see if we can have if we can have a repeat of what happened. And my thought is this. I sent a copy of John Eisenhower's letter to his daughter through the Eisenhower Library. And when I say remembering the Eisenhower's trip to Russia and new reasons to repeat it. The original trip, as you followed, is Dwight Eisenhower and his son, two Eisenhowers. That's why it's the Eisenhower's trip, plural. Now, my suggestion is the churches themselves and maybe the State Departments invite the grandson and granddaughter of Dwight Eisenhower these are the children of John Eisenhower himself to invite them to make that trip in, to Russia and make a public redoing of that, of that marvelous toast to the Russian people. Of those who were in the war, most of the participants, most of the soldiers have passed on, but there'd be some who, who are alive. Millions died, of course. The Soviets uh, suffered the most casualties of any of our allies by far in the millions. And when you add in the uh, civilian population, you're talking in the neighborhood of 26 million Russians died. Uh, and it was brutal. Fighting was brutal on, on all sides. And they could make both Susan Eisenhower, the daughter, and David Eisenhower, they could especially make an appeal to those who were youngsters and had to say goodbye 
to brothers and fathers who never returned, cousins who never came back. Maybe they had four brothers who left for the war. Maybe two came back. Maybe one came back. Maybe none of them came back. Sort of like our Sullivan brothers. Five brothers died all, all at once from a Japanese torpedo. But anyhow, if that could happen, if our State Department, if Mr. Putin's uh, State Department, if the Holy Russian Orthodox Church, if our Roman Catholic Church, even involvement from perhaps the Vatican, Pope Francis, if they could reach out in an honest way and say, look, we're, we're not friends, but we were once allies out of necessity. And it was stated that to your leadership in 1945, and it was stated again to your leadership by President Reagan in November the 19th, uh, 1985, we want all of you, all of the people to understand that because this is for all of you. This is for all of the common people. A country is founded on its common people. Nothing more. It's the common people and those who come out of the common people to serve them. And with God's blessing and God's help and your prayers, please, everyone, pray on this, okay? That's the only thing that makes it real and, and makes it something that will happen is pray on it. God bless you all. I appreciate the opportunity. Here it is, uh, September 2020. Whether you're hearing it now or a few days from now, whether you're hearing it 20 years from now or 40 or 60 years from now, if, if my daughter keeps these things uh, and people are interested in the future, God bless all of you and your families and your offspring. And God will get us through our current pandemics and everything else, and it will get us through the future things as well. But God bless all of us. God bless all of you. And uh, good health to you and good joy to you and uh, good general prosperity for all of us. God bless. In Christ's name. Amen.